Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. My name is Rich Caparola. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, October 4th and Friday, October 5th feature Ricardo Muti joined by pianist David Frey. The program includes Beethoven's Egmont Overture, as well as Beethoven's Piano Concerto No. 3, after intermission, four Hungarian dances by Brahms, and the symphony Matisse der Mahler by Paul Hindemith. Here are Philip Huscher's program notes on Beethoven's Piano Concerto No. 3, a work lasting about 34 minutes. We're not certain that Beethoven and Mozart ever met. Their names were mentioned in the same breath as early as 1783 when Beethoven's first composition teacher, Christian Gottlob Neffe, wrote these words in the earliest public notice of his promising pupil. This youthful genius is deserving of help to enable him to travel. He would surely become a second Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart were he to continue as he has begun. Nifa was suggesting that with proper sponsorship, his young pupil could tour the music capitals and entertain kings with his dazzling keyboard talent, like most musicians. Nifa assumed that Mozart would make his reputation as a virtuoso performer, not as a composer. Nifa didn't live long enough to understand how limited his view was, but he did see his prize student take the first steps to becoming not a second Mozart, but more importantly, the mature Beethoven. It's likely that these two great composers did meet early in 1787 when the 16-year-old Beethoven made his first trip from his native Bonn to Vienna to breathe the air of a sophisticated musical city. Beethoven stayed no more than two weeks, and he may even have taken a few lessons from Mozart before his teacher was suddenly called home by the news of his mother's failing health. There is, however, no mention of Mozart in a letter Beethoven wrote at the time. When, late in 1792, Beethoven returned to Vienna, where he would stay for the rest of his life, it was to study with Haydn, because Mozart lay in an unmarked grave. We can sense disappointment in the famous words Count Waldstein inscribed in the album that served as a farewell gift from Beethoven's friends. You are going to Vienna in fulfillment of your long frustrated wishes. The genius of Mozart is still mourning and weeping over the death of her pupil. She found a refuge but no occupation with the inexhaustible Haydn. Through him she wishes once more to form a union with another. With the help of assiduous labor, you shall receive Mozart's spirit from Haydn's hands. Beethoven arrived in Vienna in the second week of November, 1792. He quickly realized that Haydn had little to teach him and took comfort in the fact that he was welcome in the same homes where Mozart was once popular. To Beethoven, Vienna was Mozart's city. The first music he published there was a set of variations for violin and piano on Sevo Ballare from Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro. In March 1795, he played Mozart's D minor piano concerto, the catalog 466, at a concert organized by the composer's widow, Constanza. He later wrote cadenzas for it as well, the only concerto by Mozart he so honored. And on April 2nd, 1800, at his historic first public concert, Beethoven included a symphony by Mozart on the program, which was also supposed to have introduced his brand new piano concerto, his third in C minor. For reasons that we will never know, however, Beethoven played one of his earlier concertos instead. 
This C minor piano concerto is one of a handful of works in which the spirits of Mozart and Beethoven converse. To suggest, as some writers do, that Beethoven modeled his concerto after Mozart's own C minor piano concerto, the catalog 491, is to confuse the deepest kind of artistic inheritance with plagiarism. The choice of key certainly can't be taken as an homage to Mozart because Beethoven seemed unable to get C minor out of his system at the time. Think of the Pathetique Sonata, or a bit later, the Funeral March from the Eroica Symphony, the Coriolan Overture, and of course, the Fifth Symphony. Obviously, Beethoven remembered Mozart's C minor concerto when he was writing his own. They share too many musical details for sheer coincidence. According to a popular anecdote, Beethoven and the pianist Johann Kramer were walking together when they heard the finale of the Mozart concerto coming from a nearby house. Beethoven stopped and explained, Kramer, Kramer, we shall never be able to do anything like that. But in his own C minor concerto, Beethoven does something far more remarkable. He writes music that pays tribute to this great masterpiece and at the same time, transcends the Mozartean model. It was conceived in a complementary rather than a competitive spirit. Mozart's untimely death spared Beethoven a head-on rivalry with the one composer he worshipped, leaving him to make his own way in Vienna. He hardly knew that Schubert existed even though they lived in the same city for years. Once, when asked the name of the greatest living composer other than himself, he suggested Luigi Cherubini. Even 19th century listeners who thought Mozart a lightweight and Beethoven a quarrelsome revolutionary heard the resemblance in this music, both in its details as well as its spirit and sensibility. Certainly the way the soloist continues to play right after the first movement cadenza up to the final bar can be found only in the K491 among all of Mozart's piano concertos. Beethoven's opening theme, too, tosses a glance at Mozart, but on the big issues, how the music moves forward, the way it approaches the turning points in its progress, there is less agreement. As Donald Tovey pointed out, Beethoven doesn't yet seem to have figured out what Mozart always understood, that you shouldn't give too much away before the soloist enters and the drama really begins. There are touches of pure Beethoven, like the unannounced entry of the timpani just after the cadenza, a complete surprise, even though it has been thoughtfully prepared by a main theme that imitates the beating of a drum every time it appears. There's nothing Mozartean about Beethoven's choice of key for the central slow movement. E major, with its key signature of four sharps, is bold and unexpected in a concerto in C minor with three flats. For a moment, the first E major chord given to the piano alone seems all wrong, as if the soloist's hands have landed in the wrong place. At the same time, it's fresh and irresistible. Where Mozart generally wrote Andante or Adagio, Beethoven dictates Largo. Deliberately paced and magnificently expansive, this is the first great example of a new kind of slow movement. Throughout the rest of the 19th century, composers would profit from remembering this music, although it's arguable that no one after Beethoven ever thought of anything like the lovely, fully blossomed romanticism of the duet for flute and bassoon over plucked strings and piano arpeggios midway through. 
The way Beethoven glances over the final double bar of this movement at the opening of the finale also is new. The two movements aren't yet literally connected, as they will be in later music, but Beethoven uses all of his wit and wisdom to carry us from one to the next. He capitalizes on the fact that G-sharp is the same note on the keyboard as A-flat, and he uses that note to pivot from the remote world of E major back to C minor. Our ears easily make the connection, and the Rondo finale races forward full of pranks and good humor. Having convinced his listeners and himself, perhaps, that E major is no stranger to C minor, Beethoven returns to the key of his slow movement in the middle of the finale, as if it were the most logical move of all. Beethoven recovers C minor again, but after a brief cadenza, he tears off at a gallop into C major, where he has been headed all along. It's not clear why this concerto, evidently designed for Beethoven's first Vienna concert in April 1800, wasn't performed that night. Perhaps it simply wasn't ready. The manuscript suggests that last-minute changes were still being made before its premiere on April 5, 1803, when Beethoven also introduced his new Second Symphony and the oratorio Christ on the Mount of Olives. Even then, the music was more firmly fixed in Beethoven's mind than on the page. Ignaz von Seyfried, the new conductor at the Theater an der Wien, agreed to turn pages for Beethoven, only to discover that it was easier said than done. I saw almost nothing but empty leaves. At most, on one page or another, a few Egyptian hieroglyphs, wholly unintelligible to me, and scribbled down to serve as clues for him. He played nearly all of the solo part from memory, since, as was so often the case, he had not had time to put it all down on paper. He gave me a secret glance whenever he was at the end of one of those invisible passages, and my scarcely concealed anxiety not to miss the decisive moment amused him greatly, and he heartily laughed at the jovial supper which we ate afterwards. Nearly a year later, Beethoven finally got around to writing down the piano part for a performance given by his student, Ferdinand Ries, who provided his own cadenza. The first reviewer of the third concerto commented that the piece should succeed even in places like Leipzig, where people were accustomed to hearing the best of Mozart's concertos. He continued suggesting that this music would always require a capable soloist who, in addition to everything one associates with virtuosity, has understanding in his head and a heart in his breast. Otherwise, even with the most impressive preparation and technique, the best things in the work will be left behind. Those are wise words, particularly from a man working in a field that, to this day, expects sound judgments on new music heard cold. What no critic could predict is that this concerto, rooted in the previous century and a pioneer in its own, would continue to speak as strongly and directly to the centuries that followed. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Beethoven's Piano Concerto Number no. 3. And now on to Paul Hindemith's Symphony Matisse der Mahler, a work lasting about 25 minutes. Hitler became Chancellor of Germany in January 1933. Hindemith was not Jewish, but his wife Gertrud was half-Jewish by birth. It was she who later prompted Gerling to make his often-quoted remark, 
I'll decide who's Jewish. And so the composer was particularly watchful of the new government's policies. Later that year, he abandoned work on an operatic love story and turned his attention to the tale of the German painter Matthias Grünewald, who was torn between a self-centered commitment to his art and a life of political activism. Matthias der Mahler, Matthias the painter, became Hindemith's personal testament, conceived during the most challenging and difficult period in his life. It is his magnum opus. For nearly three years, he worked on little else, and every day he grappled with the relationship between music and politics and pondered the artist's responsibility when the world around him is torn apart by violence and hatred. Regularly, if privately, he weighed the value of his own work at a time when art to many seemed a horribly selfish, if not completely irrelevant, pastime. In the end, both Grunewald and Hindemith come down on the side of art, although the painter's dilemma during the peasants' revolt that followed the Reformation was neither as complicated nor as treacherous as that of a well-intentioned composer working in Hitler's Germany. Hindemith's choices were not always easy ones, and his decisions did not satisfy everyone. For several years, he remained in Germany watching one by one his Jewish colleagues, Arnold Schoenberg, Bruno Walter, Otto Klemperer, and Arthur Schnabel, as well as his own chamber music partners, Emanuel Feuermann and Simon Goldberg, leave the country. Hindemith's brother-in-law spent a year in a concentration camp. Although Hindemith remained isolated from world events while he was writing Matisse der Mahler, by the time it was completed in 1935, the opera put him in the middle of controversy. A broadcast of Matisse der Mahler was cancelled when word leaked out that Hindemith had once spoken disparagingly of Hitler. Wilhelm Furtwängler was advised not to stage the work because he was told Hitler had, years before, walked out of a performance of Hindemith's News of the Day, incensed by the sight of a soprano singing from her bathtub. She was merely extolling the joys of an apartment with hot running water. Ultimately, Furtwängler rose to Hindemith's defense with an essay that ran on the front page of local newspapers, and Josef Goebbels, the Nazi propaganda minister, made a speech denouncing the composer. Hindemith was no longer on the sidelines. In 1938, he was included, along with Stravinsky, Schoenberg, Irving Berlin, and Louis Armstrong, in the now-famous traveling show of degenerate music. That September the Hindemiths left Germany for a new home in Switzerland. They moved to the United States in 1940 and became American citizens in 1946. The idea for an opera about Matthias Grunewald had been suggested to Hindemith by his publisher, Willi Strecker, in 1932. At first, Hindemith was more interested in Strecker's other suggestion, an opera about Gutenberg. But he quickly came to realize that the Grunewald story was not only timely, but of enormous personal significance. Eventually, he grew to understand that Grunewald's story, in a sense, was his story. By the time the opera was done, Hindemith admitted that Grunewald's experience had shattered his very soul. Matthias Grunewald was born in the third quarter of the 15th century and died, like his more famous German contemporary Albrecht Dürer, in 1528. Grunewald sympathized with the German peasants in the bloody uprisings that began in 1524, and as a result, 
he lost the patronage of the Cardinal Archbishop of Mainz. Ultimately, however, Grunewald realized the futility of his political actions and came to understand that only by returning to painting could he truly better mankind. Grunewald's masterpiece, his magnum opus, is the many-paneled altarpiece he painted around 1515 for a monastery and hospital in Eisenheim near Colmar. This great monument, one of the most powerful and expressive works in the history of art, is in effect the scenic backdrop for Hindemith's Matisse der Mahler, and it inspired several of the opera's scenes. Shortly after Hindemith began work on the opera, Fort Wengler asked him to write a new piece for the Berlin Philharmonic. Preoccupied as he was with Matisse der Mahler, he decided to write a symphony on the same subject, taking its musical material from the pages of sketches that already cluttered his desk. The symphony was completed more than a year before the opera. Each of the three movements represents one of the panels from Grunewald's Eisenheim altarpiece. The angelic concert, the opera's overture, begins solemnly with three resounding organ-like chords followed by the trombones intoning an old German song, Es zungen drei Engel ein süßen Gesang, Three Angels Sang a Sweet Song. The song is played three times, each time a third higher. From there, the movement takes wing in sequences of radiant and soaring music. The entombment is a gentle but ultimately fearless meditation on death. It moves slowly toward a somber climax with a resoundingly peaceful ending. Hindemith originally planned to use this music at the end of his symphony as the last of four movements. For a while, when he didn't know how to go on, he even considered leaving it a two-movement work. But then he seized on the idea of ending not with death, but with another of Grunewald's panels, The Temptation of St. Anthony. This turned out to be the symphony's longest and most complex movement, written on deadline in just four weeks. The music is anguished and driven, then tormented and seemingly defeated until the winds begin to play the Gregorian Lauda Zion Salvatorum, Zion Praise the Savior. The brass offer a glorious halo of alleluias at the very end. This is the proud music of hard-won triumph. As Hendemith wrote of Grunewald, Caught in the powerful machinery of church and state, he had the strength to resist these forces, and in his painting, he could report clearly enough how profoundly he was shaken by the wild tumult of his time with all its suffering, its sicknesses, and its wars. Program notes by Philip Huscher on the symphony Matisse der Mahler by Paul Hindemith. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.